This is Pulse Check. I'm Ben Leonard. And I'm at the Milken Future of Healthcare conference this week, where I've seen a lot of networking over the Build Your Own Avocado Toast Bar. There are hundreds of health professionals at this conference, and we wanted to know, if you had a magic wand, what's the one health policy change you would make? Wave a magic wand? Ooh, give me a second. There's so many to choose from. Probably single-payer healthcare system in the United States. Around drug repurposing and the fact that we need to create new clinical trials for drugs that are already proven, at least through phase one. Timely diagnosis is a real problem. So if we could maybe not change, but introduce policies that assist, especially the underrepresented communities. I mean, I think the biggest thing is that we need a lot more funding for mental health research. Um, It's critically underfunded, and it's something that impacts one in four people in the country. Um, Access to drugs, particularly for cancer patients, is really at this, this critical space where where the, the cost of drugs has continued to go up in a way unabated. There needs to be a comprehensive all-government way of addressing um, drug costs in this country. I would create tax incentives for patients to participate in clinical trials uh, because they can be costly, and as a result, they don't participate in clinical trials. Through making that tax deductible, very simple thing to do, you could, you could potentially accelerate the number of people who go on clinical trials open source data so the data would benefit the entire community of people rather than just be held for profit. I also caught up with Steve Posnack. I serve as the Deputy National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. Nice long title, uh, <laughs> as, as DC titles go. Well, thanks so much for making time. You know, I know your panel is talking about, um, you know, kind of getting data to the right places in healthcare and how it's been a challenge. Um, what do you think are right, sort of the biggest barriers for people getting their healthcare data? Sure. So, um, yeah, patient access is the uh, topic du jour. Um, you know, along the lines of ONC's work in general, we look at things across a number of different dimensions. So some of them are policy-related issues. Uh, we can talk about those, I'm sure, in the future. Some of them are technology-related issues. And then we just have you know, normal business drivers in terms of um, market demand, uh, user experience, other types of services that people would go you know, to access their data for and uh, to, to try to gather their information or to make their lives easier from a healthcare perspective. And then I guess just, you know, to give some background for people that aren't super deep into health IT policy, Congress passed a law aiming to make sure that patients can access their data. Um, You know, this would potentially benefit patients who want to switch providers so they can bring their records with them. I mean, HHS just implemented regulations mandating the data sharing. Um, But there are exceptions and some providers have pushed for more time. Um, So I guess just, you know, big picture, is this policy change, do you see it help patients and how so? Yeah. Um, so I'd start with the, you know, long ago in a regulatory galaxy far away, you know, <laughs> there was the, the HIPAA rules first, uh, specifically the HIPAA privacy rule, which established, you know, our right as individuals to get a copy of our health information. And so the 21st Century Cures Act, which you alluded to from mm-hmm. 2016, um, built on, you know, those, that foundation, uh, we issued um, follow-up regulations to implement that statute. And uh, as you noted, it calls for uh, greater freer or freer flow of information, specifically in the patient context, um, you know, reinforces that, that right of access, especially when it comes to electronic health information. So, you know, we recognize that there are going to be cultural norms, uh, changes. Uh, I think as we, you know, just covered, there are some technological changes that will make it easier for us as individuals to access our health information. Uh, right now it's spread out 
in a lot of cases for a lot of us. Uh, and so getting all, that all together cumulatively, helping us build our own longitudinal health record is, is some of that future potential. And I guess just on the information blocking front, you know, how do you make sure that it's working um, you know, as it progresses? You know, the statute was passed right at the end of the Obama administration in 2016. We went through a multi-year regulatory process to get feedback and comments, issued final rules, and it's, you know, been roughly two years with a number of kind of compliance milestones along the way, October 6th of 2022 yeah. uh, being the most recent, uh, where the uh, full definition of electronic health information uh, is now in place. So uh, there's still a few other pieces that we need to put in place uh, when it comes to uh, disincentives for healthcare providers, one of the three main, uh, we call them actors, covered, mm-hmm. covered actors under the rule. But, you know, we are uh, currently now tracking one of our responsibilities under the Cures Act is to receive information blocking related complaints. So we have uh, on healthit.gov a, a data feed that we, yeah. uh, you know, do some analysis on the, the inbound complaints and make that available. It's going to take time, though. And I think that's, uh, there's, a, there's a healthy level of impatience among the community, mm-hmm. uh, coupled with, uh, you know, early stages of um, everyone understanding the rules, us making education materials available. So it's all a process, um, but it's working. Yeah. So you mentioned the data, um, you know, the data that's come out so far, most of it has been um, by patients against providers. Um, what do you make of those complaints that are coming in so far? And how does it kind of jive with what you expected? It is probably an underrepresentation of the overall ecosystem experiences. Mm-hmm. And, and to keep in mind the information blocking rules, even though our emphasis and focus today is around, you know, individual access is um, all of the various interactions that occur in healthcare. So it could be business to business type B2B interactions where two healthcare providers could, you know, engage in an information blocking type of scenario or, you know, working with a third party app or service developer and you have a health IT developer that is uh, causing an information blocking kind of friction to occur. And so all of those different scenarios, um, lots of different market dynamics, it's been, um, uh, you know, fascinating to see that the rules and their requirements and the expectations have made their way to uh, patients and individuals. Mm-hmm. Um, some of that is through you know, hard work and advocacy from some of the, the groups that have uh, you know, continued to bang the drum for greater patient access. Um, but I think it's an underrepresentation, like I mentioned at the beginning, um, of really what everyone's experiencing. And, and you know, I'd never pass up an opportunity to note that the Cures <laughs> Act uh, has certain confidentiality requirements that yeah. are attributed to those complaints. So we have strict processes that we need to follow as well in case anyone's concerned about, um, you know, disclosing certain information uh, and that being, you know, made available publicly. Okay. So we've reached sort of the end of the glide path, as you've described, I think, in a blog post. Um, you know, what is there anything that worries you about, you know, the implementation and how everything proceeds going forward? You know, we do our best with the rulemaking in addition to going through all the public comments to try to tease out every possible scenario uh, that could potentially come up with regulations. And as you've seen and as I'm sure listeners have seen, you know, we do put out frequently asked questions. We put out um, the uh, other types of guidance documents, and that's to help fill in those gaps. And so, you know, one of the natural concerns, uh, speaking with my, I guess, token regulator hat on, is <laughs> there's a scenario that comes up uh, that we, um, you know, need to spend some extra time on. And in some cases, natural evolution, uh, just like with any regulatory process, um, if there is uh, points of confusion or ambiguity, we have to go through another rulemaking mm-hmm. process, you know, to help address those. And that, that's, not a, um, that's not a flaw in what we went through. Yeah. That's a feature of the regulatory process and being responsive, you know, to, to stakeholder interests. 
And I guess just on a big picture level, curious, you know, if you, if you had a magic wand, um, you know, is there one healthcare policy that you could change? King for the day. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a really good question. Greater alignment on um, some of the privacy rules. Uh, that has certainly been a challenge uh, that I've started my career on. I, mm-hmm. I, I did projects at the beginning of my career at ONC on variation in state law and uh, privacy and security policies. That hasn't um, changed all that much in the, the better part of the, the past decade or 15 years now. And um, that's been something that we've tried to throw technology at. And it's worked at varying levels. In other cases, I think you know, we need some broader consideration uh, from um, you know, policy changes and fresh looks in that area as well. I think the newest thing also that, that um, made me consider that as an answer was the uh, breadth of health information that's now available mm. outside of the traditional healthcare setting. And so, again, you always have this situation where technology gets ahead of the law, the law has to catch up. And so I think we're in that, that space now where we're trying to find a new balance point from that pendulum perspective. Cool. Well, thanks so much for coming on. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thanks for the invite. Thank you. We'll be right back. Over on Capitol Hill on Tuesday, lobbying reporter Megan Wilson attended a Q&A with Jack Resnick, the president of the American Medical Association. He was in town from San Francisco to push lawmakers to avert nearly 8.5% in Medicare payment cuts for doctors that will kick in in January, unless Congress acts. Here's Jack Resnick in that Q&A. And another study that got published uh, talking to physicians about their plans for the future, one in five said they are likely to leave the practice of medicine in the next two years. I've never, you know, I've, people often say, well, I don't know, I'm a little burnt out, maybe I'm thinking about retiring. This is completely different in tone and quantity to me, and it leaves me really worried. We already have a workforce shortage, and, you know, here we go, going into a triple-demic winter. This just seems to go on and on and on in terms of our needs growing for, for physicians, and, and I worry that we're driving people out of practice. So, at a moment like that, I really sort of... Uh, tweeted this yesterday, I can't think of a worse time for Congress to say, hey, we're going to cut you 8.4%, which I think would just be, A, incredibly demoralizing, even to face the potential of this, and um, if it happened, would, would make it impossible right now for physicians to keep their practices open. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Annie Reese and Brooke Hayes are our producers. Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ahmed is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Ben Leonard. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening.